0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about the clash between politics and diplomacy, between populism and technocracy in the whole area of migration. It is now, a few weeks since Europe started dividing in new ways on a new topic as uh, its leaders prepared to head to Marrakesh to sign a global compact, the UN's global compact on migration. And this obscure international treaty or, uh, seemed to have an absolutely uh, electrifying effect on national politics in in, in many different countries as governments have fallen apart, foreign ministers have resigned and then unresigned. And uh, many people who were involved in preparing it seem to have been quite confused and surprised by the political divisions that this document has engendered. So to help us make sense of that, we have an all-star cast From Berlin, we are joined by Tom Nuttall, who is the Berlin Bureau Chief of The Economist. From Madrid, we are joined by Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, who is the head of ECFR's office there and a senior policy fellow at ECFR, who's also been running a series of uh, workshops in in Madrid on migration. From Paris, we are joined by Shoshana Fine, who is uh, an associate at ECFR, also working on migration, returning to the podcast again. And we're very happy to welcome from Warsaw, uh, Patricia Sasnal, who is the deputy head of research and the head of the Middle East program at PISM, which is the, the main Polish foreign policy think tank. So, Tom, you've just written a, a piece for The Economist describing uh, this new political eruption around the the Global Compact. Maybe you can tell us how much damage it's it's done to European politics. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's um, just it, that people by surprise. I think that most people credit, if that's the correct verb, um, Sebastian Kurz, the uh, the conservative chancellor in Austria, for starting a sort of mini tidal wave of withdrawals um, from this compact. Um, he announced at Austria. Um, would not uh, adopt the compact. I think it was at the end of October. And although by that, at that point, we already knew that Hungary wasn't going to take part. That was no surprise, given that um, opp- opposition to immigration is at the heart of the Orban government's identity. Um, but after Kurtz pulled out, then we had a string of withdrawals from other countries, largely but not exclusively um, in Eastern Europe. Um, and then in the, in the run-up to the adoption of the compact at the start of this week, um, there was a, a crisis in Belgium of all places where the uh, the largest party in government the uh, the, Fla- the party of Flemish nationalists, um, which uh, has adopted quite a hard line on migration ever since the two thousand and fifteen crisis. Um, declared that it would not agree to the government putting its name to this. And um, without getting into the weeds of Belgian politics, which could detain us for hours, um, that seems to have created a sort of strange constitutional crisis where uh, Charles Michel, the prime minister, secured a parliamentary majority um, to sign it. But um, the NVA, the, the Flemish nationalists, have actually now withdrawn from the government. So that country is now mired in uncertainty. Um, But at the same time, there's been a a certain amount of pushback from the defenders of the compact, um, perhaps most um, vocally here in Germany, uh, from Angela Merkel herself, who has been robustly defending it um, in the Bundestag and elsewhere. She went to Marrakesh at the start of the week um, to lend a bit of stardust to the proceedings. Um, And then there are various other leaders in other countries um, who have uh, been declaring themselves unhappy with um, the willingness of politicians like Sebastian Kurtz to um, fall victim to what they consider to be fake news. Um, uh, uh, social media campaigns that are perpetuating falsehoods about what's contained in this compact and so forth. So for me, what this is, and I'm sure we'll get into this in more detail with the other speakers, but this this, uh, compact, which is not a treaty, it's not legally binding, um, it explicitly declares that governments retain the sovereign right to determine immigration policy. The arguments around it are not really about the compact. They're about something else entirely. And for me, it's really uh, what I called in the piece that the smoldering embers of a a culture war that um, erupted in 2015 and is still there below the surface. Uh, the, The UN compact just happened to be a convenient scapegoat for parties who were looking to sharpen their identity on this issue
2: um um could, could i jump in here just for a sentence <laughs> I, I i think i think we we crediting sebastian Kurtz for starting the wave uh too early because actually it was it was urban very early uh, in the negotiation process already a year ago when he said that the EU does not have the mandate to negotiate uh, the the compact on part of the all 28 members, and he was the one that voiced objections first, so I think he he, uh, he would want this to be said. So I am saying this so we all know that it wasn't Sebastian Kurtz. Yeah. Can
3: I can I jump in there with a point too that that it actually really recalls something for me that is as you say I really couldn't agree more with Tom's point that. I don't think that this is really about the compact and it reminds me of this notion that that we talk about in political science about the border spectacle which emphasizes the symbolic function of border controls and here again i think that the withdrawal of states is less about a concern for the real consequences of the pact after all it's not legally binding but it seems more about projecting an impression or an image of control to the wider public and reaffirming the importance of border and national sovereignty
0: so that's um, very clear and that's why just to read an incomplete list Austria Bulgaria the Czech Republic Estonia Hungary Italy Latvia Poland Slovakia all had like major political um, fuss uh, around this as well as Belgium that's already been mentioned Um, but Shoshana do you want to tell us what is actually in this Document. We know that it's not binding, so therefore, presumably, um, uh, that limits its uh, its impact. But where does it spring from, um, and and what does it actually do?
3: Two really important questions. So basically, you know, it's one of the first. The reason why it's one of the first agreements of its time to kind of bring together. Uh, among different states, receiving states, trending states, and sending states to kind of cooperate on migration governance. So we've seen this before, for instance, in the realm of asylum, forced migration, but we've never seen this bringing together the different dimensions of migration governance. So these 23 objectives include you know, diverse thematics from saving lives, Uh, to combating trafficking in persons, uh, to improving border management, uh, to facilitating returns, or even to thinking about uh, how migration can contribute to development. So we've got a a really wide range of dimensions here. Um, But of course, uh, these 23 objectives all still remain quite vague. So none of them tell states what to do. But what we can see is a kind of different ethos in the compact. So the compact is trying to move away from this kind of very much securitized language that we see uh, across European states. So trying to talk about migration as a normal phenomenon, uh, we sp- in the compact they're speaking about migration management rather than migration control. Uh, so trying to work towards a different kind of paradigm I would say for thinking about migration management and bringing these countries together Um, So
0: So in a way, it's trying to do for migration, what the global development goals do for for development, have a series of of, uh, goals, which can then be used to guide how international resources and money and political time gets spent in the future.
3: Absolutely. To some extent, I would say it's about framing the debate. But actually, and I think the kind of The possibly more important role of the compact is in creating a community. So creating a global community, creating a notion of shared interest and shared problems among states who have very different interests. So it's really a trust building exercise. It's about friendship making. And international organizations have been very much involved in this kind of initiative in the migration field since the 2000s, and it's actually been very effective, this community building, in working in parallel to the construction of more formal legal and binding agreements, notably, for instance, readmission agreements.
0: Right. So, Patricia, you're sitting in, in Warsaw. Um, how convincing does what Shoshana said about this um, sound to somebody who's, who's um, living with uh, the kind of day-to-day debate about migration in a in a country where um, there's been a lot of resistance to get involved in EU schemes, let alone in global schemes, is it altogether surprising that this um, uh, should have had a kind of negative impact on the national conversation in places like Poland or Hungary or, or Austria?
2: You know, I, I'm I'm sort of hesitant in answering this question because I complete I completely agree with Shoshana. I think it's about the ethos that this. Agreement is about. Uh, But Poland, Hungary, uh, Austria, Austria joined later, as I'm saying, uh, they they raised some objections. And these objections were that there's insufficient uh, differentiation in the text between legal and illegal or irregular migrants. But then, actually, the goal of the whole compact is to make more legal migration or possibilities for legal migration and lessen illegal migration. If we were to take just one objective out of the 23, um, I guess that would be the goal. So I think that the whole gist behind the agreement is making that differentiation between uh, regular and irregular migration. And then maybe there's there's also this thinking that if we do join in, then the whole debate will start again. And you know, by by not signing the agreement, if you if you listen to the media here in Poland, I don't know what it's like in Hungary, but the topic is just non-existent. It's it's as if nothing happened because the government does does not have to take a stance or it doesn't have to be publicized and then also legally um i'm not i'm not a, p- a particular expert because i'm not a lawyer uh, but legally even if the agreement is non-binding it does set the standards and and uh, um norms you know at some point the, the the universal declaration of human rights was not is not binding but it's part of of our legal uh, uh heritage and so in lawsuits i mean civil cases uh at some point in the future, maybe a Ukrainian who works or worked in, in Hungary could could pick up this uh, agreement and say, "But hey, these are my rights, for example, and this is what Hungary and and countries like Poland are afraid of." Um, yeah.
0: So, Nacho, you've been um, sitting also in a country where immigration is a big topic. It's, you're pretty close to Morocco. There's a lot of uh, migration across the the Mediterranean. Um, but also Spain has been getting in various fights with some of the countries that decided not to go to Marrakesh, like Italy, about how migration should be um, dealt with. How, how did you see it from, from where you're sitting? The compact,
4: it's, uh, uh, it's a rational uh, uh is the only way in terms of how comprehensive it is, how wise it is to deal with this uh, with this problem in an integrated and coordinated manner. It says specifically that uh, it reaffirms the sovereign right of states to determine their national migration policy and their prerogative to govern migration within their jurisdiction. So it, it states uh, that, that states remain sovereign to deal with the, with the issue. So it has the debate around the compact that, as it's been said, it has little to do with its actual content or with its binding nature, but with the fact that you can manage migration in a rational way, uh, this can only be do, done in a coordinated and integrated way. And this is precisely the message that some governments don't want to accept and don't want to uh, to, to send to the citizens. Uh, so so it's, a, it's pure refusal and uh, negationism. And this is why Spain, who, which supports this compact, has been in a fight with, with all these countries because they don't have an alternative to anything that is in this compact.
0: Right. So does it actually matter the fact that um, a bunch of European countries didn't sign the compact?
1: I mean, I, Mark, I, I, to connect... The, Two of the points that have been made. Um, I, I think what Nacho just said is exactly right, um, because the, but one of the arguments I was trying to make in my column is that even the, the most sort of hardline um, restrictionist government on migration um, if it's going to be honest with itself and with its citizens, will have to acknowledge that the measures that it would need to put in place in order to um, uh, to, to, to make it to satisfy its goals have to involve cooperation with other governments. If, if it's things like repatriation agreements or um, dealing with countries of transit or whatever, whatever else it might be. And that is why this issue of trust is so important. That's why. Um, the fact that it's legally binding um, in this context is not especially relevant. The point is the process of negotiating this thing, which involves the endless compromises and give give and take and sort of long negotiations in airless rooms uh, in New York or Geneva or wherever it was. Um, that process provides a basis and a framework. Through which various bilateral or, or even multilateral regional agreements can be made. Um, what doesn't make sense is to is to give the message, like so many European governments have done, um, that you can simply. As Natasha said, put your head in the sand and pretend that these forms, these methods of negotiation um, are useless and, uh, and and a sort of a Trojan horse, as some of them seem to be suggesting, for um, expanding the grounds for asylum or creating a human rights to migration or whatever else it, it is that they're talking about. And the trouble is now that a lot of those countries... Um, so-called sending countries, particularly in Africa, are going to look at this experience where they negotiated with these countries, they made compromises and concessions in the course of, of the negotiations, only to have countries with whom they'd negotiated Walking away from the table. And it's going to be that much harder now for those countries to conduct those, uh, to come to those sorts of agreements that they might want to do in the future on repatriation or um, migration agreements or whatever else it is. So it seems to me that even for the most hardline governments, the sort of attitude that they're taking towards this compact is utterly self-defeating.
3: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, there's actually a very strong security dimension to the compacts. You know, a lot of the objectives very much fall in line to the objectives of European interests. And, you know, if we look, for instance, at the European, the framework for EU external migration and asylum in the European context, um, the GAM, we see that it, you know, it, you know, discursively, um, it claims to deal with these different elements, so legal migration, maximizing the development impact of migration, and also preventing and combating irregular migration. But what we see in practice is, of course, you know the vast majority of resources and political will are very much about combating irregular migration now in the pact you know all this is very much open the, the pact doesn't dictate uh, how states will prioritize within these 23 objectives
2: may i just add that you know i think we we're, well, we're focusing on the on the seven countries of the eu that did not sign the compact but then 21 did and uh, <laughs> I know it's, it may be a, a, not much of a consolation, but if we look at other um, agreements of this kind, surely they were not as global. and not as significant, but let's think of the International Convention on the Protection of the Rights of Migrant Workers. That's a convention from 1990. It was signed by 51 parties, all representing the global south. Not a single European country signed it. And here I think there is a sense of urgency, there is a sense of unavoidability. Uh, so I, I think it's still a, a step forward, and the whole compact is so important because it just sends a signal. I think you know, 164 countries signed it, and we, we're having this very eurocentric debate here. But all the countries that are really there with the burden of the refuge of the of the migrants, and most migration happens in the south. You know, uh, a minority, probably a fourth of migration, uh, does reach the north. So. I think it's also um, it, it's, it, it's an epitome that the fact that that all southern countries uh, signed it is an epitome of, of the responsibility of those countries and, and the urgency because obviously it's such a giant. Migration Migration is such a giant that just needs domestication and, and like challenges need to be met with, with like weapons. And this is a, a global challenge is met with a global weapon. And I think it's, it's, it's a very important step that we should not underestimate.
0: So what does it tell us about the future of the uh, EU? Because I think that um, it's clear, as you've all said, this is not going to do much for uh, trust between North and South. <laughs> um, but... I think it does show how hard it is going to be to to get EU agreement on a lot of other issues. This has been one of the run the, the kind of open wounds in the European Union since twenty fifteen and the fact that the EU has split in this way twenty-one seven. Um and not all the twenty-one did it in a very uh, fulsome or or happy kind of way. <laughs> um uh shows that uh, we could have a, a kind of tricky year ahead of us with European elections and other things going on when migration is likely to be a, a big topic as well.
4: If I can come in here, I think precisely what these um, governments have been trying to do is what they want to, I mean, it's not only wrong, but it's uh, in moral or principle terms, but it's not effective that, the problem of what we've been um, experiencing in, in the managing of uh, on, in, decision, in decisions on migration policies is that uh, countries have been taking unilateral decisions and have constantly refused to Europeanize uh, policies. Um, and, and again, you know, I think their refusal to um, to the global compact rests more on the, way, on, on, on the message that they don't want Europe to have a common migration policy. Because, of course, if you adopt this global compact at the global level, you would then have to adopt it and develop it and turn it into legislation at the European level. And currently, Europe doesn't have uh, an immigration policy for irregular immigration. Therefore, you cannot have legal pathways. You cannot have for migration. Return agreements are very weak, and therefore, member states are free to have very restrictive or illiberal policies when it comes to to migration. And unfortunately, I think this is part of the deal that uh, some countries would want to keep after the next elections. And, and And my concern with this is that Europe will be will end having very illiberal policies on migration, both at the national level, which we already have, but they would also want to have illiberal policies on migration at the European level because they will securitize um, borders and, of course, refuse to open for legal pathways or for a for, for, um, comprehensive and intelligent management of migration. So we could end up with a very illiberal um, Europe on both accounts and both levels. Do you all agree with
3: that? I do think that the compact uh, is a step forward. And and I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, the compact speaks about the fact that Europe, among other countries, if we take the case of Europe needs migration, you know, with in many countries, we're seeing ageing populations, lots of sectors of the economy rely on migration. You know, European societies benefit from migration and I think it's very important that the pact underlines this so the pact trying to create a different kind of culture a different kind of discourse around migration and I think you know we've really seen over the last few Through years, it's certainly not migration that's threatening Europe, but it seems to me that it's migration policies and this very toxic discourse around migration that is that is that is threatening. And this has kind of left us in situations where Europe is becoming more fragile and divided. And you know, we're seeing things like Brexit that have emerged over the last few years.
0: Patricia, is that a very Western European outlook? I mean, I, I would have thought that in most Eastern European countries, where between a fifth and a quarter of the population has has been uh, has left the country, and many of the brightest and the best have gone, um, migration is literally, you know, uh, hollowing out many uh, of the different countries, and that's why you're getting new debates, like in Romania, where people are actually talking about um stopping people from leaving the country for uh, for more than 5 years.
2: Yeah, well Polish po- yeah, Polish population is aging as well and and we we're, we're short of, of of manpower. And so um as you probably know, we have large circulatory migration from Ukraine. So there's uh, more than a million Ukrainians every year that come to Poland and go back. Come to work for half a year and then go back. But recently, since the 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 labour market has opened for Ukrainians in the uh, in Germany and and further west, uh, they are more prone to just go and work uh, in Germany rather than Poland. And so we're really short of um, of of, of labour migration. And so more and more often you would see in the streets of Warsaw uh, people from Bangladesh, India, Nepal. Um, I think you need to differentiate the big narrative and the big rhetoric that is there from the governments, and then the small steps that are being taken on the lower levels. And this is happening in Poland because... Uh, th- these people are being admitted and they they are looked after they, they are looked for and after uh in asia and and we really need migration and you know actually all uh, reports that i know and these are oecd or european commission reports show that uh, uh migration is conducive and beneficial for for the hosting societies and the hosting um economies so th- there are only pluses there uh, but but the fact is that There's a need, probably there should be, if there's a goal, then it should be to demystify and objectivize the migration narrative, the, the way we talk, and the politicians specifically, because they have responsibility and they, they shape views and, and positions. They have the responsibility to use the right narrative. I think if migration was a comprehensive phenomenon, it would not evoke fear and, and would then be harder to utilize as a political tool. So, you, take the word immigrant, you know, it has a negative connotation and, and relates to migrants from the global south. While parts all of a sudden has a positive connotation and relates to migrants from the global north even if both in fact denote a person who has moved to a foreign country so i i think we just need to take care about how we talk about migration i mean migration as a threat right no migration is not a threat it's it's a phenomenon
0: it is a threat for some people i mean they're winners if you have large numbers of people moving around and people willing to work for less money in different places it obviously threatens some people, even if there's an aggregate benefit, and it changes the culture of a country, which is one of the reasons why people are, are, are responding in the way that they are. Tom, you, you wanted to... to yeah, to I mean, in?
1: it's really distant parentheses, um, because it related to uh, one of the earlier points. But um, it, it, in terms of the EU, the intra-EU discussion on migration, there's a, a slightly sad irony to this, which is that um, w- when I was reporting on this from Brussels a few years ago, um, they're kind of internal EU dimension on how to manage migration, especially the question of reform of the Dublin regulation and how to share out asylum seekers inside the EU. That was the issue that was really, really divisive. You know, the famous quotas um, and the the, uh, the the hard resistance of Visegrad and other countries to schemes that were pushed by Germany um, and the European Commission to have compulsory um, relocation schemes. Um, but now this this UN thing, Um, What what used to be the case is it was what they called in the jargon the external dimension. Um, So managing um, uh, immigration from outside the EU, which often meant controlling or restricting immigration from outside of the EU, that was easier to find agreement on because most countries, including the Germans, agreed that you should restrict it as much as you can. Um, But this EU compact spat has sort of reopened um, that second front, as it were. Um, and there is as a little coda to that. Um, the, the This discussion on the internal dimension is, is still going on. In fact, I think it's going to be discussed at the European summit that starts um, on the 13th. Um, and there is word that the French and the Germans have agreed together that they will no longer After three years of pushing for this, they will no longer be pushing for compulsory quotas and that uh, countries that resist taking in asylum seekers from other EU countries might find other ways to express their solidarity, whether it's in the form of sending border guards or providing funding or whatever else it is. So there may be a kind of detente visible on the, as it were, the internal dimension, just um, uh, aspect of the migration fight, just as the external one has been hotting up again. Okay.
0: Um, well, I think that more or less brings us, um, to the end of this podcast. I think what we've seen is that we have, um, a very cosmopolitan and outward looking panel, even from right across the European Union. We brought together, um, a lot of supporters of, 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 the, of the global compact and maybe, um, our conversation, um, uh, shows some of the, disconnect between the sort of technocratic rational ways in which uh, civil servants and uh, UN diplomats um have been trying to address the migration issue by looking at all of these different global consequences and the more political uses to which this has been put within uh, within different uh, national political theatres and maybe some of the irony about this clash between politics and, and diplomacy uh, could also be seen from the fact that as we're talking, um, the British Conservative Party is uh, currently um, preparing for a vote of no confidence in, in Theresa May um, because a lot of uh, le- Conservative MPs are so disgusted at the the deal which her civil servants have, have managed to negotiate with people in other countries um and uh, want to to weaponise it within the British political sphere. We're recording this before the vote of, of of no confidence, but the podcast is going to go out afterwards, which is why we haven't discussed it very much during the discussion. Uh, but maybe we'll look at even wiser once that particular story has, has worked its way through. Thank you very much to all of you for taking part in the discussion. We have one thing left to do on the podcast, which is um, our bookshelf, segment um i was wondering if tom you want to go first what's on your bookshelf at the moment
1: well as a new arrival in germany i'm immersing myself um in very learned tomes largely about german history which i won't bore your listeners with but um i also recently finished a novel by a german novelist um called uh, journey jenny erpenbeck um, and it's very relevant to this discussion because it's about um, asylum seekers in Germany and in particular um, a, uh, a, a retired professor who finds himself getting involved in the, uh, the, the daily quotidian struggles of, um, of migrants to get good housing, to make sure that the benefits are received properly. Um, and it's a very, very delicately told tale um on an issue that i think fiction very often struggles to to handle properly it very often slips in, into the didactic the novel is called in english translation it's called go went gone in german gehen ging gegangen. uh highly recommend it she's a very talented writer and uh, apparently a hot tip for uh, the nobel prize in the future so you, you heard it here
0: first possibly great <laughs> thank you shoshana what's on your bookshelf
3: Yeah, right now I'm reading a book by Philip M. Froud uh, called Security at the Borders, Transnational Practices and Technologies in West Africa. And this is a really interesting book. You know, when we're thinking about Uh, the role of the United Nations and international organisations. So the compacts, as we've seen, is all quite discursive. It's about producing norms. In this book, we're looking at a very neglected area, how international organisations are managing migration, changing cultures of migration management and border control on the ground, uh, and in this case, in West Africa, with a particular focus on international organisations like the IOM. So I very much recommend this one too.
0: Great. And what about you, um, Nacho?
4: Well, I just got uh, something which I was spending uh, because I liked a lot his previous book by Timothy Snyder, Just Arrived Today, How Democracies Die, <laughs> you know, which is, you know, the topic of the year, no wonder, and probably next year as well. Um, let's see, you know, I have a uh, uh, great appreciation by Stephen Levitsky and, and Daniel Sidlet, uh, they're good scholars, and the recommendation by Timothy Snyder is, of course, great.
0: Great. Okay. What about you, Patricia?
2: Um, I've just finished a book by Erich Fromm a German uh, philosopher. Uh, which is called The Revolution of Hope. And it's a book from late 60s, I think. Uh, it's about the politics of hope against all hope. You know, "Pess contrast pem is this Latin uh, phrase that says that we need to have hope against all hope. Uh, and he's just proving how in history, hope has driven us to great heights. Uh, and I guess that's the book we need today.
0: Okay, and I'm um, still working my way through uh, a book by two German sociologists, Ulrich Beck and il- his wife, um, Elizabeth Beck Gounsheim, called Distant Love, which is about the globalization of love and um, looks at uh, the sociology of long distance relationships, which is pretty interesting stuff, how global families can import. The sorts of conflicts between different uh, worlds, first uh, world and the third world, between different religions, social systems, and um, uh, break a lot of the things which normally keep relationships together and replace them with other ones. Anyway... um It's been a fascinating discussion. We'll see what happens with the global compact in the future, whether it it does have an effect on, on reframing the debates or whether it simply provides more tools for populists and insurgent parties to continue their game of trying to put the migration topic into the heart of domestic politics around Europe. But for now, from Tom Nuttall from... Shoshana Fine, José Ignacio Torreblanca, and Patricia Sasnal, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atsinaro.